I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. We will be looking at chapter 14 in verses 1 to 11 this morning. Mark chapter 14 and verses 1 to 11. Mark chapter 14 verses 1 to 11. Brothers and sisters, if you would then please hear with me the reading of God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while He was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as He was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, in the, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19 and verse 21, we are told this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Every day, people devise plans and they go about their lives seeking to bring those plans onto a particular end. It was Saul who, who planned to kill David and he did everything that he could to bring that plan to fruition. It was Jonah's plan to flee the Lord and he did everything he could in order to flee the Lord that he might not go to Nineveh and call out the sin of the people against him as the Lord had commanded. And yet, brothers and sisters, in both of those instances, what we see is that the purposes of the Lord stood. David, time and time again, escaped the hand of Saul. In fact, we are told in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verses 16 and 17, that as Saul and his men were closing in on David to capture him, all of a sudden what happens? A messenger comes up to Saul and says, Saul, you must return immediately to our land, for the Philistines are raiding it. And Saul and his men turn around and head back home so that David escapes capture from Saul. When Jonah thought that he was going to escape by hopping on a boat to, to flee the presence of the Lord, 
all of a sudden what happens? There's these great winds that beat against the boat. And the men become frightened. And so they cast lots, saying, Whose evil was it that has brought this upon our ship? And what happens, brothers and sisters? The lot lands on Jonah. And because of that, as a result, Jonah is cast off the boat. He is swallowed by the whale. And inevitably, what happens? He ends up in Nineveh, just as the Lord had commanded him. And what we see, brothers and sisters, in these instances, is the very thing that King Nebuchadnezzar came to realize once his kingdom was taken from him, which is that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as He does according to His will amongst all the hosts of heaven and amongst all the inhabitants of the earth. And none, not one, can stay our Lord's hand. You see, man fancies his own power and his own ability to bring his plans to fruition. But oftentimes, what man forgets is that he is subject to the dominion of his Maker. And those acts by which God powerfully orders all things pertaining to His creatures and their actions, after the counsel of His will and for His own glory, is what we call divine providence. What we call divine providence. And it is this providence that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 5, verse 17, when He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this providence of God extends to all persons. It extends to all places and all events. And in fact, this is what we see going on in our text today. We see that although there are these various characters in our story who have their own particular plans that they want to execute with their own particular purposes for doing so, that it was God's plan all the while being executed through them, bringing to fruition the precise outcome of His own holy, wise, righteous, immutable decree. We see this in the chief priests and the scribes in their attempt to put Jesus to death. We will see this in the woman who is Mary in her anointing of Jesus' body. And we will see this likewise in the actions of Judas. And so this is what we want to look more closely at this morning. And so in our first point that we're going to look at, to see how God powerfully works out His plan and how He powerfully directs all things to a specific end, we're going to call that point the Jewish leader's plot. Okay? So point one will be the Jewish leader's plot. Now in verse one, we are told that this occurs two days prior to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which means what? It means that, that this day is Wednesday of the week. It is Wednesday of the Passion Week. And it is on that day that we are told that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now haven't we seen throughout the Gospel that Jesus has has continually drawn large crowds into Himself. And those large crowds have become quite fond of Jesus, haven't they? But they've become fond of Him for for varying reasons. Some were fond of Jesus because of what He could do for them. They've seen Jesus as this great miracle worker. And we see an example of this in Mark chapter 3. After Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, what are we told? This great crowd forms around Jesus. 
So much so he has to tell the apostles, get the boat ready in case they crush me. But it's because they were looking for Jesus to, to heal them as well. Right? Others followed after Jesus and were fond of Jesus because they seen Jesus as a great prophet. We learn this in Mark chapter 8. When Jesus asked uh, Peter, who do the people say that I am? How does Peter respond? They say that you are John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. How else do people view Jesus? Well, some view Jesus as the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And we came to realize that through the shouts and the cries of the people in Mark chapter 11 when they said, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So we see that there has been this swelling support for Jesus as He enters into Jerusalem and the people look upon Jesus with favor. Now the chief priests and the scribes know this. They know this. This is why they have not yet acted upon their plot to arrest Jesus because they were afraid of the people. We are told this in Mark chapter 12, if you remember, after Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, what happens? We're told in verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. And it was that present fear then that caused them to determine amongst themselves that they weren't going to arrest Jesus during the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because you can imagine if they were afraid of the, of the crowds that existed then, think about how much more they're going to fear the crowds that would gather for such an event. As during the Passover and the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the population probably grows from about 50,000 people to 250,000 people. Yet this plot to destroy Jesus, we know though, has been hatched for some time. Right, Jesus has been in ministry now for three years, and so the plot to kill Jesus has been around three years. Right, way back in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath day in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we're told the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, seeking how they were to destroy him. You see, brothers and sisters, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees, their, their evil knew no bounds. And in fact, all it continued to do is worsen over time. The more that they, they learned about Jesus, right? the more that, that Jesus did these miraculous works, the more Jesus spoke these divine words, the more the crowds followed Him, the more that they identified Him with the Messiah, the more the chief priests and the scribes wanted to destroy Him. The more they despised Him, the more they hated Him, the more intent they were to make sure that He died. And we see the same type of thing play out in our own society today, don't we? What we see is this. Usually, generally speaking, the more you know about Christ, the more you know about His deeds, the more you know about what He has said, what He claims, it will either cause one to love Christ more, right, or to hate or despise Christ more. Right? People who don't know much about Christ generally are indifferent to Him. They generally are indifferent to Him. They might not like Christians, but Jesus, they probably heard uh, that He cared for the poor and that He didn't repay evil for evil. So generally speaking, most people who, are, who don't know much about Jesus are indifferent to Him. They think, yeah, He was probably a morally upright guy. But oftentimes it's those who are in church. It's those who are amongst the body who walk away are the ones who despise Christ the most. 
It's those who grew up in church every week. It's those who went to summer camp, church camps. It's those who, who went to Iwana on Wednesday nights, who, who came to, to Sunday school. Right? It's those who are heavily involved in the church or adults who have been in the church for a long time who once they walk away from the faith are oftentimes the ones who have the, the biggest axe to grind against our Lord. In fact, it's come to my attention, uh, not, it came to my attention not too long ago, that in fact a, a very a well-known and recognizable evangelical figure has had this happen to him in his own son. His own son walked away from the faith, but he did not walk away quietly. In fact, he walked away and now he makes videos that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people view in which he disparages the Christian religion, in which he calls it false. And he talks about how horrific and terrible it is and why he no longer believes. Right? He, he takes his hatred of Christ and he pours it out in these videos for all these people around the world to see. Now, he, he knew the Scriptures. This is a, this is a, a man who once confessed faith in Christ. A man, though, who once walked away from the faith, who then returned late as a teenager, only to walk away once more. But you can be sure, he, he heard the Gospel. Right? He knew of Christ. He knew of His works. He knew of His deeds. But brothers and sisters, I submit to you, this is why he was not willing to just walk away quietly. But that he had to show his, his hatred for Christ because he knew so much about Christ. And so he tries to now injure Christ by leading others away from the Savior. And this is what we see the, the scribes and the Pharisees playing to do here today. Right? It was their hatred for Christ because they knew so much about Him that it caused them now to want to injure Christ and to put Him to death. But they want to do it according to their predetermined plan and at their predetermined time. But what do we see in our text? And what will we see going forward? That God says to them, No. No. They didn't want to do it with people around during the feast. But as we will see, Jesus is put to death at the feast of the Passover when Jerusalem is most filled with people. Right? They wanted Jesus to be put to death without much people noticing. They didn't want an uprising, a stirring up of the people who favorably looked upon Jesus. They didn't want the Roman government to catch wind of all that was going on. And they wanted to do it quietly. But what will we see? God will say, no, He will have them publicly crucify His Son for all the people there to see that day. What we see, brothers and sisters, is, is that man has plans, but God's plans always triumph. Right? Man has plans, but God's plans always triumph. It was God's plan from the beginning that Jesus would walk into Jerusalem that week and that He would suffer and die on that day. Jesus Himself knows this. He told them this three times on, on three occasions. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus says this, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, spit on Him, flog Him, kill Him, and after three days He will rise. You see, it was, it was God's plan that Jesus be killed on the Passover. It was that particular day that God had chosen, tying the shadow to the reality. Right? In doing so, He ties the shadow to the reality. He demonstrates that this is the true Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of His people, to atone for their sins. He is the once and for all sacrifice. 
But what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, in this is that Jesus was not dragged to the cross ultimately by the ungodly and wicked acts of these men, but rather Jesus was led to the cross by the providence of God. Jesus was led to the cross by the providence of God. Yes, the scribes and the Pharisees had their own plan. They had their own reasons for wanting Jesus dead. And they are responsible for their wicked and sinful actions. But if it was not God's plan for Jesus to suffer and die that day, it would not have occurred. Right? God's plan always triumphs over man's. And brothers and sisters, this ought to be a great confidence for the believer. Right? Knowing that, that Jesus went to the cross willingly and He voluntarily surrendered up Himself for the sins of His people. It ought to comfort us and be a confidence for us that knowing what took place and when it took place and how it took place and at the hands of whom it took place was all according to the plan of God from the very beginning. We see that divine providence, brothers and sisters, is irresistible. Divine providence is irresistible. Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not even the apostles could hinder the plan of God or stand in His way. And so this ought to be the antidote for you and I and for all Christians against fear and anxiety and worry about anything. Because we see that if God can bring this plan and this event to its fruition, then we ought to believe that God likewise, in those small matters and issues that we deal with, can likewise bring us through those. And so there is no need for us Right to, to have anxiety and worry and fear in the Christian life. Right? Knowing that God's providence is always working. He, is always, he always has His hand in all things. And so we see here, brothers and sisters, the providence of God in the Jewish leader's plot. But this then leads us to point number two, which is Jesus' anointing. Jesus' anointing. Look with me once more, please, starting in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some there who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory of her. Then, So we see here, brothers and sisters, in verses 3 to 9, Uh, that Mark takes liberty here. Mark takes liberty as the author of the Gospel, uh, not to write chronologically here, but rather thematically. He he does not write chronologically here, and we know this uh, because the same account is in John's Gospel. In John chapter 12, and in the very first verse of John chapter 12, we are told that this event takes place six days prior to the Passover. This happened six days prior to the Passover. And so unless we want to say that the same people gathered 
And the same alabaster flask of ointment was broken and poured on Jesus. And the, the same conversation and argument was had, which we don't. Right? Then we need to see that simply here, Mark is placing this event between the plot to kill Jesus and the betrayal by Judas for the purpose of contrasting their wicked and evil hearts with the loving and devoted heart of Mary who was a true disciple of the Lord. And this is how likewise we know the identity of the woman who pours this oil upon Christ because in John's Gospel we are told that it is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And so then we read in verse 3 that Jesus is at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. Now Simon here is referred to as, as a leper um, because he probably had leprosy before. And in all probability, it was, it was Jesus who healed him of his leprosy. And so he had leprosy no more. And as Jesus is reclining at the table in Simon the leper's house, we're told that Mary comes with this alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and that she broke it and that she pours it over Jesus' head. Now this alabaster flask was probably some type of stone used to contain this ointment and it would have been sealed at the top so that it would have had to have been broken in order for her to, to pour it over our Lord's head. Now in the flask was what Mark calls nard, which is a costly perfume which comes from a root native to India. And it's probably true, as many commentators point out, that this in all probability was like a family heirloom. This was something that was the grandmother's who was passed down to the mother, who was passed down to the daughter, because this piece is, is so valuable. And after Mary breaks it and she, and she pours it upon the Lord, what is the response of some of the apostles? Right? They become indignant, we're told. They're, they're angry with Mary. She wasted the perfume, as they pointed out. This could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And as we've looked many times over the course of our sermon series in Mark, that, that we, we've said one, one denarius was equal to one day's wage for the laborer. So 300 denarii is what? It is equivalent to, to almost one year's salary. And so initially we can see maybe why someone would become uh, surprised or shocked that she would, she would break something so expensive and that she would pour it out over the Lord. I mean, just think about how much you, you make. What is your salary? And then just think about writing a check and just giving that away. I'm sure your family would say, wait, what in the world are you doing? Right? But what is the Lord's response? Right? He says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, what I want you to see is that it's not a distinction between poor and not poor or poor and Jesus. Remember, brothers and sisters, don't forget that, that Jesus, in taking the form of a lowly servant, was the one who, who was rich and became poor. And so it's not a contrast between poor and not poor. It's a contrast between those that you will always have with you and me who you will not always have with you. All right? And so he said, he's not saying it's not time now to give to the poor but rather these poor you will always have. You will not always have me. As Jesus recognizes that his, his final days are approaching. And Mary then is, is praised for in her anointing of Jesus' body with oil, Mary, Mary is showing her devotion. She's showing her love. She's showing her honor to the, to the Lord. Excuse me. And so how can Jesus not be pleased with her action? Right? How could Jesus, her Savior, not defend her in the face of those who would look to scold her? 
Right? Mary's heart was full of love for the Lord and that was demonstrated in the pouring of this ointment upon our Lord. In the pouring out of that, of that ointment, what it, what it really symbolized right, is the pouring out of Mary of everything that was in her heart for her Lord as well. Now it was said once that a, a cold heart makes for a cold hand. A heart that is cold is, is one that is not willing to, to break with things easily. And if you do, oftentimes it's done reluctantly. And I ask you, what, what is something that is, that is prized or valuable in your own lives? And when you answer that question for yourself, ask yourself, are you selfish with its use? I think for the majority, if not all of us, the answer would be yes. Our most prized possessions, we don't want to share with other people. And if we do, we, we do so reluctantly and we try to give the very, the very least that we can of what we have. But we see here, brothers and sisters, in Mary's actions, that love spares no cost. Right? Love spares no cost. And what it teaches us is perhaps that we need to do some, some self-examination. That we need to be asking ourselves, is there anything in our own lives that we deem too costly to give to Christ? Right? The question we need to be asking ourselves is, not do I give too much to my Lord, because you never can. But rather, what is it that I'm holding back from my Lord? What is it that I have not given that I ought to be giving up to my Lord? Because, brothers and sisters, let me tell you this, love spared no cost for you. Love spared no cost for you. The Father sent His Son into the world that He might die for you out of His love for you. The Son voluntarily died for you out of His love for you. And so how can you say you love this, the, uh, your Savior and not be willing to give all for Him? And so I ask you this day, what is it? Is it your time? Is it your time that you view most valuable and that you sparingly give to Christ? That instead of doing those things that you ought to be doing, like the spiritual exercises of this day, we use our time for other things? You see, brothers and sisters, we live in a, in a funny society. And I don't mean funny, haha. I mean like funny in the bad sense. Right? We live in a society where someone who devotes their lives to, to their work or to, to their sport or something like that are put on this pedestal and we say, these are the people you are to strive to be like. But if someone is devoted to God in that very same way, if someone says to their co-workers who want to go out and get drunk, I'm, so, I'm sorry, co-workers, I don't, I don't do that. If you say, sorry, mom and dad or son and daughter, I can't make it to the, to the, the zoo with you today. Today's the Lord's Day. We, we don't do that. If you say to your kids, sorry, we don't watch this or we don't listen to this or we don't surround ourselves with these kind of people, if we spend our lives, the majority of it, doing spiritual things, then people look at us like we're lunatics. They look at us like we're crazy, we're nuts. All of a sudden, when you devote that same time and attention to God that people do their work and their recreation... Instead of putting us on a pedestal and saying, that's the kind of person you need to emulate, what they say is, that's the kind of person you need to, you need to stay away from. Stay far away from that, that crazy person there. But brothers and sisters, I submit to you that it shouldn't matter to us. It shouldn't matter to us that the world thinks in this way, because like Mary, right, we ought to understand that God has called us to a life of devotion to Him, a life of, of service to Him. He has called us to deny ourselves and spend our lives 
right? Walking after him, following him, living obediently unto his will. And we see, brothers and sisters, in our text today that, that God blesses that kind of devotion. He says to all there in verse 9, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And brothers and sisters, I want you to see that here today as the gospel is preached, this passage is fulfilled. As we remember the, the good work that Mary has done for our Lord. And yet the full extent of that good work, I'm not sure that even she knew. For she pours this ointment out upon our Lord as a show of honor and devotion to God. But what does Jesus say, in fact, she was doing? She was anointing his body for his burial. Right? That, that family heirloom that they had probably for so long within the family was, was never sold, was never uh, used for any other occasion. And why is that? Because in the providence of God, it was to be used on this day in that house in order to anoint Jesus' body before His death and burial. You see, brothers and sisters, as a criminal, which Jesus would have went to the cross as, they were not afforded the privilege of having the body anointed with oil prepared before the burial. And so what does our Lord do? He makes sure that His Son has a, has, is properly taken care of and treated prior to His going into the grave. And this then leads us into our, our third and final point, which is Jesus's betrayal, Judas's betrayal. Point three, Judas's betrayal. Look with me once more at verses 10 and 11, please. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. In John's Gospel, in fact, we are told that it is Judas who is the one who stands up and is indignant over the, the use of this oil upon our Lord. It is Judas uh, who, who spoke up and said, this should have been sold and given to the poor. But what do we know about Judas? Right? That, was, that was feigned concern for the poor. As all Judas was concerned about was being able to siphon the funds from the prophets that the sale of that perfume would have, would have brought with it. Right? Judas acted as if he was noble. He acted as if he was honorable, didn't he? Oh, I care for the poor so very much. And like Judas, there, there are many like that in the churches today who, who sit in the pews week after week under the preaching of the Word, who act honorable before others. Right? They, they hear the Gospel. They participate in the sacraments. They pray, but inwardly they are sons of perdition. They, like Judas, are, are like the seed that is sown on the thorns. Right? They hear the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come in and choke it out of them so that they become unfruitful. You see here, Judas sells his, his soul for what amounts to, to not much at all. Thirty pieces of silver. And what does that demonstrate to all of us here today? His willingness to sell his soul for thirty pieces of silver are to demonstrate to us that he did not understand the true value and worth of Christ. That he didn't understand the true value and worth of Christ. And how many is that true of today, brothers and sisters? They say, I believe. Maybe they wear crosses around their neck or they have crosses on their walls in their home. But it is an outward show and they've never truly followed after Christ because they think that they can maintain a relationship with Christ and at the same time maintain a relationship with the world, which is an impossibility. 
But I want you to see how easy it is for for unbelievers in the church to, to mask their unbelief. And so we have to ask, is that true of any of you here today? Are you here today masking your unbelief? Are you in that that lost condition still? Because, brothers and sisters, we all started off in that lost condition. And each and every one of us would have continued in that lost condition if not for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And even after all that Jesus did for Judas, how does Judas repay him? With betrayal. With betrayal. I'm sure at least all the adults here know what it is like to to be betrayed by someone. Well, how much more does Christ know what it is to be betrayed? And yet, brothers and sisters, this all was being worked out according to the perfect plan of God. Judas' betrayal was no coincidence. Judas' betrayal was not a shock or a surprise to our Lord. In fact, He knew it must happen for the Scriptures to be fulfilled. We read in Psalm 41, verse 9, David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. And that passage has found fulfillment here in Christ. It was Jesus' close friend Judas who betrayed him, who did the very thing, though, that he was raised up to do. And as he, along with the chief priests and the scribes, worked wickedly together to destroy Christ, what we see throughout all of this is that God is working out our salvation through it all. He's working on our salvation through it all. And so, brothers and sisters, I exhort us all today then to admire God's providence. Let us admire God's providence. For without it, there would be confusion and disorder abroad. The providence of God, knowing that He works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purposes, ought to comfort the saints. It ought to provide relief from all anxiety and worry and stress and trouble. For we know that God cares for His church. As He is preserving us in the midst of our enemies, we know that He cares for His church as He daily grants to us His sanctifying grace and mercy. And we know that that providence of God is going to continue until the end in the consummation of all things. And so let this, brothers and sisters, be a cause of thankfulness to God. Right, seeing God's hand in everything, knowing many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that shall stand. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your divine providence. We thank You, Lord, for what a comfort it is to the weary hearts of the saints. We ask, Lord, that this day You would you would enable us uh, to set apart some time to, to consider Your providence and then to praise and worship You for it. For it is such a, such a, a great doctrine that should warm the hearts of the saints. Uh, we ask, Lord, this day that uh, You would teach us uh, the truths of this word that we have heard this morning. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that we would apply those truths throughout the rest of our lives as we are conformed to the image of your Son. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.